Biologic modulation of the microbiome. What's its place on the spectrum of biologic therapies? What do we know about the ravaging effects of antibiotics on the beneficial bugs in your belly? And importantly, what do we know about the detriment to the sick and the hospitalized when interactions between the human microbiome and the host immune system are interrupted? Thanks for tuning into the Business of Biotech. I'm Matt Piller, Chief Editor at Bioprocess Online. And today, we're going deep into the gut to address these questions and many more with Dr. Bernat Ollier, CEO at Vedanta Biosciences. Dr. Ollier is a biotech entrepreneur. After earning his Master's of Science, PhD, and MBA, all from MIT, he founded the regenerative biotech Folica under the Pure Tech Health umbrella, where he also served as venture partner for nearly a decade. His current company, Vedanta Biosciences, is also a product of PureTech Health, founded in 2010. Dr. Uye is a co-founder, first served as COO, and was appointed CEO of Vedanta in 2015. Dr. Uye, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Happy to be here. I'm happy to have you, and uh, I'm doing my best to pronounce your last name correctly. Give, 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 it, give it a shot for our audience once so we can hear it the way it's supposed to be said. It said Uye, and the trick is this this double L sound doesn't really exist in English. Yeah. So it's it's hard. It kind of sounds like Uye. Well, I'll I'll continue to practice throughout our conversation uh, as long as you don't laugh at me. Well, if it's if it's any consolation, nobody here can say it except for the Russians, which somehow can pronounce a double L sound. They somehow get that, huh? Yeah. Okay. All right. So for the past 10 years, uh, the microbiome has, has been your dance floor. Uh, and I've, I've learned quite a bit. I've, I've read up on you. Um, I, I've watched some videos that, that you've hosted, your, your TED Talk. And I've learned quite a bit about your passion for microbiome as a therapeutic frontier. And I want to I start at a very high level and then drill down you know, into, into where you see appropriate. But if you could share with our audience the why behind your mission uh, to sort of mainstream the modulation of the microbiome, what's, what's kind of driving that, that mission? Yeah, so maybe I'll start with the, the personal why. I, um, I did my, my PhD thesis work uh, at MIT on bacterial fermentation, uh, working with uh, Professor Danny Wang. Danny, unfortunately, passed away just a few days ago, and, and he was really a giant in the biotech industry. He was very influential in the early days of biotech, in applying chemical engineering principles to figure out how to ferment and do downstream processing on that then very new modality of using proteins as biologics, which today we take for granted, but a few decades ago, figuring out how to manufacture those was a, was a big problem. Mm -hmm. So my thesis looked at how to make bacteria more productive as, um, as a technique to manufacture biologics. And then I, I moved away for some time. I, I, I started, as you mentioned, at PureTech. At that time, uh, PureTech was a private uh, company doing venture creation, and I worked on starting several projects. And um, at some point there, I was given carte blanche to look for new projects that could become biotech companies in whichever area of science I thought could have the most impact in the future. And at that time, the microbiome field was 
starting to really take off with the declaration of the human microbiome project by the NIH, which brought funding to the field. And some of the early pioneering work of researchers like Jeff Gordon or David Bellman that showed that community of microbes that we live with plays very important roles in health and that it's amazingly diverse and complex. And at that time, I became very interested in the work that a group of uh, US and Japanese immunologists were doing to understand how the immune system senses microbes and how that information could be used to create new drugs that don't have some of the limitations of, of existing drugs. Mm -hmm. And so basically Vedanta was born out of the initial outreach of, um, uh, to, to, to those investigators. And uh, we, we set out to learn from the mechanisms that microbes use in the intestine to be tolerated by humans to create drugs for immune-mediated diseases. And hopefully later I'll get to tell you a little bit more about what some of those are. Yeah, for sure. Um, also on the personal level, and I, you know, I, 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 I guess I'll just step in here and ask you to tell the story. If you've got a personal story about the, about your honeymoon, don't you? That sort of sort of yes. relates to this, uh, this, this subject. Yes. So in the early days of starting Vedanta, um, before my wife and I had our first child and, and actually had a life, we <laughs> we really liked to travel and and hike, and we did several tro uh, several trips to Nepal to hike in the uh, Himalayas. And, um, you know, when you, when you spend enough time there, it's sort of like a toss up, whether you're gonna get a bacterial or parasitic infection from the food or from the water. I mean, it's pretty likely. Right. Um, but usually you don't know what it is. You don't know if it's a, a bacterium, if it's a parasite. So what the doctors here do before you leave is they'll usually give you a prescription with metronidazole, which is an antibiotic that helps against parasites and Cipro, which is an antibiotic that helps against a broad range of bacteria. And if you have intestinal problems while you're there, you're kind of, and you're far from a hospital, which is usually what's going to happen if you're in the mountains, mm -hmm. then you're invited to, you know, use your own judgment to treat yourself. Although, of course, if you don't know what's causing the infection, it's, it's a bit of a crapshoot because sure. the, yeah. the, the, the drugs may do nothing. And so we found ourselves in a situation where both my wife and I got sick and we were really far away from the nearest hospital, probably like several days worth of hiking. And we had a long discussion about whether we should be taking the antibiotics or not. Basically, I pleaded the case that, you know, it didn't make sense because we actually didn't feel that sick. Um, and we really didn't know what caused the infection anyway. Um, and I had seen some of the early data that one of our co-founders had generated showing the effects of these two antibiotics on some of the beneficial bacteria in the gut, which completely obliterate them, so I didn't really want to take them. Mm -hmm. But as, as much as I played in my case, my, my wife did differently. She was like, okay, that's good, but you're not a doctor, and the doctor said you should do this, so I'm gonna do that. Um, and so basically she took the antibiotic and got better right away. I didn't take the antibiotic, and it took me a little bit longer to, to get better, but I did get better. Yeah. Um, and however, a week later, she started having recurrences so that the, the infection came back for her, uh, and I didn't. And of course, that's an, an end of one. But if you want to extrapolate, um, you know, I guess the broader, the broader point is there is a, antibiotics can act very quickly and be very effective, but they also have mid-term and long-term consequences. And, and one of the obvious ones, which I hope to get, to get to talk more about today, is that they decimate the bacterial community that lives in the intestine. 
and elsewhere in the body. And, and after that happens, you become more vulnerable to reinfection uh, with a range of bacteria that are opportunistic and can be up to no good Yeah, uh, for a period of time. Yeah. And this, this becomes problematic in hospital settings. And yes, we will. Uh, I've, I've got some questions for you on that front uh, as we move along here. But um, I, I want to get your perspective on, on the, the bacteria, I guess the uh, acceptance of bacterial therapies sort of in the, uh, as far as their home on the, on the biopharmaceutical uh, spectrum. So um, I, I know that Vedanta refers to bacterial therapies as sort of a whole new class of drugs. Um, and, you know, from a classification standpoint, there's no question that they're produced from a, a living organism. And therefore, you would assume like, hey, they, they uh, fit as a biologic. Uh, d- does the biopharma industry ac- accept this field as a, as a true biologic? And to what degree? So maybe to, to take a step back, g- giving patients live cells as therapies is not completely foreign to pharma. Uh, there's now approved therapies, uh, cellular therapies, that are being given for cancers and for other applications. Uh, however, those are based on human cells. Uh, the key difference here is that we're giving therapies that are based on bacterial cells from the gut microbiome. And there's a whole new di- dimension that comes into understanding the ecology of right. how the cells interact with each other, which I think is not really a factor when you think about cell therapies the way that pharma thinks about it today with human cells. So how, how pharma will accept it is still largely to be seen. Some pharmas have dipped the toes in the field, some have watched from the fences, normal. Uh, it happens with every modality. I think it may really depend on the specific modality within microbiome. For example, I have a hard time imagining that pharma will fully embrace commercializing fecal transplants. I think it's a it, it's maybe too big of a departure from what they're comfortable with. Yeah. Um, I have a much easier time imagining how they might embrace more reductionistic approaches, like for example, using small molecules made by a bacterium that themselves may have some pharmaceutical activity because that's much closer to what they're used to doing and what they're good at. Um, at Vedanta, we're somewhere in between. We're, we're not going reductionistic. We're not using fecal material either. We've come up with a modality that involves using defined consortia of bacteria as a drug. And what we mean by that is that the drug is a community of multiple species of bacteria, but it's defined in the sense that it's always exactly the same bacteria. Mm-hmm. We can produce them as a biologic a GMP biologic that always has the same quality. Um, I think that these types of products may be embraced uh, by pharma with time, but still they require a conceptual shift compared to how you think about developing a small molecule or protein-based drug. I think perhaps the, the most salient departure from traditional drug development based on small molecules or proteins or oligonucleotides is that in these latter modalities, approaches using chemistry, biology, and computational science have been very successful at enabling drugs. So if you know about this broadly, these three types of disciplines, you're in business. Uh, I think the development of, of 
drugs based on live bacteria that colonize the intestine is going to need to rely heavily, very heavily, on insights that come from ecology. Mm -hmm. And this is a dis discipline that is largely absent and has been really completely ignored by the pharmaceutical industry to date. So there, there aren't people that are comfortable thinking um, philosophically with, with principles of, of ecology. So that's why I think that in the, in the short and midterm, biotechs like us will be the better place to, to nurture the innovations that are necessary to advance these modalities, take the risks away until um, uh, conceptually it becomes uh, easier to accept by, by um, in the, income, the large incumbents by pharma. The business of biotech is brought to you in partnership with Cytiva. Together, we're committed to helping the leaders of new and emerging biopharma companies navigate the financial, organizational, human resources, and regulatory waters you'll encounter on your way from discovery to the clinic and beyond. Check out a host of useful resources for biotech leaders at Cytiva's Emerging Biotech Accelerator at cytivalifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A lifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. Yeah, what is the, the, commercial, uh, the commercial play around... Um, so probiotics, for instance, uh, what, what kind of an impact is, I mean, there, there's, uh, you know, I, I use the word stigma. There's sort of this commercial stigma and that might be a word that's too strong that, uh, um, you know, says targeting the microbiome is akin to the, the, the hype around over the counter products, uh, the marketing craze around, you know, food that, that, that includes pro and prebiotics. Uh, does that help or hinder your cause? You know, as we talk about how uh, the acceptance of um, bacterial therapies kind of plays out. Does the commercial hype help or hinder? So I don't think it's too strong a word. I think that the criticism is deserved. Mm -hmm. um, the, the hard evidence supporting the use of, of over-the-counter uh, probiotics and probiotics that are included in foods um, in terms of them having a, a, a meaningful health effect yeah. is very, very weak right. in the majority of areas where, where benefits are being claimed. And, and I think that the fundamental problem with the uh, OTC probiotic history is that the bacteria that are being used, these are not bacteria that have a shared evolutionary host, uh, history with, with humans. These, these are bacteria that have often been isolated from dairy products like milk, like cheese, mm -hmm. uh, or at best from the infant gut when you put them in the intestines of adults, they don't thrive. They don't persist. They're usually gone in a matter of hours and yep. they don't colonize abundantly. And what we and others have seen is that if you cannot invade and colonize that ecosystem, it's unlikely that there's going to be a meaningful therapeutic effect. It's not impossible, but it's, it's not very likely either. And so in my view, the more logical solution is to use as active ingredients, bacteria that are best adapted at thriving in the human intestine. And those are the bacteria that have co-evolved with us. So these are the type of bacteria that, um, uh, that, we're, that we're focusing on. Yeah. And so, you know, you mentioned the, 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 the hype, and, and I think this is something that we all have to, to contribute to, uh, 
to controlling. Uh, I think from the point of view of drug development, it's, it's incumbent on us, the, the industry players, to contribute to bringing credibility in the field by publishing our work, putting it out there for peer review, having it criticized. Um, that's how you advance a new modality and mm -hmm. how you gain the, the trust of the scientific community. And we've, we've consistently done that at Vedanta and, and that's, that's been our philosophy. Yeah. Um, let's, let's get back to the marketability of uh, bacterial therapeutics. The, and we talked sort of, sort of anecdotally, you know, about uh, problems in the, in the gut microbiome. How, how big is the problem uh, and, and how does Vedanta plan to address it? So, you know, just kind of frame up for us um, this, this issue that you're attempting to address, C. diff, you know, and so on. What, what does that look like in, in reality? Yeah. So I think there, there's, there's two clinical problems that are fairly well defined where I think uh, generally as a class, microbiome interventions can be more useful than the drug modalities that exist today. Mm -hmm. um, and there's many other problems beyond those two that will likely emerge over time, but they may need a little bit more time and effort to really um, show the promise. To me, the, the first and clearest medical need and opportunity is in infection control. Um, today, uh, we largely rely on antibiotics and the problems with antibiotics and, and emergence of antibiotic resistance are, are well understood. Uh, and this is not a war that we can win with antibiotics. We, we have to try to have new antibiotics ready, but ultimately bacteria will always develop resistance. And it's just a matter of time before, before that takes place. So we need better solutions. Uh, there's alternatives, of course, you, you can, you know, if we all wore masks forever, <laughs> and right. infection control would be easier. And, you know, you, you need to wash hands in the hospitals, et cetera. There's, there's many things that you can do to, to do infection control. But ultimately, we know that there's a well-defined problem, which is that after taking high-risk antibiotics, so high-risk antibiotics could be things like second or third generation cephalosporins, fluoroquinolones, beta-lactams in general, antibiotics that, that really target a broad spectrum of the bacteria that live in the intestine and kill them mm -hmm. and, and elsewhere in the body. After these types of antibiotics, which in many cases are absolutely necessary. You know, we talk a lot about stewardship and unnecessary use of antibiotics, but there's all other use that is um, necessary to enable a broad range of procedures that need to happen in the hospital, right. like surgeries, uh, like chemo for cancer patients, uh, like bone marrow transplants, uh, like different procedures that people who have liver disease need, need to undergo. Uh, the, the, the combination of these two elements a high-risk antibiotic and an underlying disease in the patient is really a problematic cocktail. Especially, we've seen that you know patients that have uh, complicated liver disease, like cirrhosis, patients that are undergoing bone marrow transplants that are getting bombed with antivirals, antibacterials, and antifungals, patients that are getting organ transplants that also have to get heavy prep regimens with antibiotics. Patients that are in the ICU for an extended period of time that may have gotten like weeks of antibiotics, uh, that may be elderly uh, and fail. When you combine those elements, it's really uh, an explosive cocktail because these, these people, after getting an antibiotic, 
will be far more vulnerable than a, than a healthy young person to then being colonized and then infected by a range of bacterial pathogens and viral pathogens and fungal pathogens that dwell in the intestine. Uh, most healthy people carry them around. You and I probably carry some of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're not problematic if the host is healthy, but when the host is vulnerable, they can really take, take off. And yep. When they do, in the hospital setting, they have an advantage because they may be resistant to many of the antibiotics that are used to treat the patient. So then you can really compound the problem and the outcomes that are problematic in hospitals are infection, uh, mortality from the infection, bacteremia, sepsis, and a range of immune complications. So th- this class of problems of which C. difficile is one of the culprits, one of the types of bacteria that can cause the, an infection, but there's many others. There's VR, vancomycin resistant enter- enterococci, there's um, forms of E. coli that produce, um, uh, that, that have resistance to beta-lactam antibiotics, forms of enterobacteria that are resistant to carbapenems. There's a long list of bacteria that fit the bill of being an opportunist that can take over in that situation. So in that case, I think that the solution of coming after an antibiotic and repopulating the microbiota of the patient to prevent that infectious event really serves an unmet need that is not being um, served by antibiotics. And then the second broader class of problems that I think have good, good support is um, modulating of, uh, modulation of immune responses. We know that somewhere between 80 to 90% of the cells of the immune system at any point in time are in the intestine. And the reason they're there is because they have to patrol these trillions of bacteria that live in the intestine, some of which are problematic, most of which are good bacteria. And so it, it should not be a surprise that in, in, in conditions like inflammatory bowel diseases, colitis, Crohn's, um, and potentially others, the type of bacteria that live in the intestine determines if you're more likely to, uh, to have inflammation or, or the opposite. And yeah. so we view changing the compositions of bacteria in, in patients that uh, have immune diseases as another orthogonal solution to the types of approaches that are being used today that are more based on either blocking cytokines or blocking T-cell homing. Uh, and things of the sort. Mm-hmm. Tell me, uh, you know, in the, in the former case, uh, I'm, I'm interested in learning about what the preemptive um, clinical use of bacterial therapeutics might look like in a hospital setting. So, you know, you, you've got antibiotics, to your point, decimating the microbiome and ushering in uh, the opportunistic pathogens that, that cause bigger problems. Uh, that's sort of a matter of standard operating procedure. So what, what would it look like for Vedanta to step in uh, with with its therapeutic candidate and and try to solve that problem. So I think a reasonable entry point would be pick a population to get started. Uh, pick a population that's very high risk, a group of patients that are very likely to develop infections based on their uh, underlying uh, characteristics, either their age, or their previous antibiotic use, or or other comorbidities that they have and come in right after they've received an antibiotic. We know that right after the antibiotic that they need to take for whatever is it that they need the antibiotic, there opens a window of vulnerability during which for the next seven days, 14 days, 21 days, you are that much more likely to develop an infection. Mm-hmm. And then come in with a therapy that repopulates the, the, a healthy community of bacteria in the intestine that is more resist, resilient and resistant to 
these opportunistic pathogens taking a hold. Yeah. Do that quickly right after the, the antibiotic and then as a, as a clinical beneficial outcome, measure the proportion of patients that go on to develop infections. Did you manage to lower that proportion? If you do, then that's a very meaningful, um, that's a meaningful therapeutic goal. CDFCL is a, is a very classic example in an area that we're working on mm-hmm. of exactly what I've described, but there's many other settings where uh, that also takes place. Ideally, you want to do that with a drug that is very safe and that it's oral. And, and the reason why is, obviously we all want safe drugs, but if you're going to give them preventively to patients that have not yet developed the disease, then you have that higher a burden to make sure that the drug doesn't harm them. Sure. And so everything that we've learned about the modality of across three, three healthy volunteer studies that we've done so far, with three different drugs that we've developed is that this seems to be a very safe modality. We haven't seen any severe adverse events or high grade adverse events that are problematic. So yes. we think that we can give the drug safely. And the second characteristics is you, you want an oral because you know, sometimes the drugs can be taken in the hospital. Uh, antibiotics can be given in the hospital and often it's by infusion, but sometimes you need to keep taking them at home and you in fact do not want the patient to come into the hospital because then they could expose other patients in the hospital to whatever disease they're carrying. And I think that, you know, in the COVID times now, everybody understands that. Sure. Right? If you have COVID and you go somewhere, you can expose other, other people. And so if you could get treated at home with an oral drug that doesn't require an infusion at a center, then um, that, that much better. And, and, and both of those things, safe and oral, is, is something that we can do with the drugs, as well as most importantly, reconstituting the microbial community which is something that you cannot do with antibiotics. In fact, you do the opposite. Right. So when I, when I think about it in my uh, sort of simplistic, you know, Pennsylvania guy, uh, simple-minded <laughs> terms, uh, it occurs to me that or not, your, your gut mic- microbiome and my gut microbiome are probably entirely different right now as we, as we sit today. So, so should uh, either one of us require uh, a therapy like this, um, or should be able to benefit from a therapy like this. How does how does a an at scale uh, therapy that that you're producing in a you know GMP environment you know with with very prescriptive I guess ingredients benefit us both when the original you know micro, healthy microbiome that that we each feature right now are, are so different. So I, it it occurs to me that there there you know, there would be a need for some element of personalization, yet you want to remove that from your at-scale manufacturing approach. Can you address yeah. that? Yeah, so, so, so let me like make a first a comment on healthy versus disease and then on personalization. Uh, personally, I, I don't see merit in giving um, microbiome drugs to healthy people because by definition, if you're healthy, you shouldn't need a drug. And, and that's kind of like my broader point with probiotics over the counter. Right. If if you're already healthy, what is healthier? Um, and why do you well, no, think it's good? But yeah, I'll, I'll rephrase my question real quick. Just before before, and you you may be getting to this point before you go go too far down. Like let let's say that you and I are in uh, hospital beds, you know, side by yeah, side. Exactly. We're sharing a hospital room, and, yeah. and 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 we've both been, you know, we're both either anticipating or having been through, um, you know, a a, a round of antibiotics that is decimated, you know, the environment yeah. in our gut. Um, 
re- replacing a, you know, how does a, I guess what my question is, how does a mass manufactured, you know, at scale manufactured kind of off the shelf uh, bacterial therapeutic replicate what was healthy before? How, how does it get me back to, yeah. to what I look like before or does it? Yeah. 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 So, um, and, and I knew that that's what you, what you were getting okay. at. Um, All right. I, I apologize for the departure. The, um, there are some disease settings where the alterations to the microbial flora that are caused by X, where X can be antibiotics, are fairly clear. In mm-hmm. others, they're a lot more tenuous. Um, but I think that the clearer those alterations are, the less, the less important personalization becomes. So, so let me elaborate on that point. In C. difficile, for example, we know that after vancomycin, which is the antibiotic that's typically used, you have an almost complete decimation of two or three main clades that most healthy people have, mm-hmm. and an immediate bloom of a problematic clade of bacteria that includes a lot of pathogens that's called proteobacteria. Uh, that's been shown time after time in different, um, in different studies. And we know that by giving our type of drugs, we can repopulate the microbial community of those patients um, and reintroduce some of the beneficial bacteria while driving out some of the problematic bacteria. Yeah. Um, and this is, um, while there is patient to patient variability on how much each person benefits, it is clear that we can help a broad swath of patients despite the fact that everybody's getting the same Right. Same drug. Okay. So, so C. difficile is, is a proving ground that shows that, that this is possible. What it doesn't show yet is whether this is generalizable. Whether if you go to a cancer patient or, um, or a patient that has an allergy or a patient that has a metabolic uh, condition, um, you will too be able to use something that's off the shelf and, and, and help a broad swath of patients. And I think that there, it is actually likely that in some conditions, you will need some degree of, of personalization. The, the way we address this today with our approach is, first of all, by picking diseases where we think the, the, the role of the microbiome is, is quite clear and the alterations are quite clear. Yeah. Uh, two, by using bacteria that we have a shared evolutionary history with that, that have traits that enable them to colonize a broad swath of, 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 of humans. And then three, by, by doing the pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic dose ranging work to figure out what is the right dose level, what is the right dose duration, and what is the right pretreatment with an antibiotic that optimizes a broadest percentage of the population that we're targeting getting colonized with the bacteria. Yeah. And still, you will, you will not get to 100%, but you could cover a, a broad swath. In the future, uh, as the field evolves, what, what I would like to see and, and you know, will, will likely be part of that is how tailoring uh, a diet to a microbiome drug ensures best effects for that specific person. Right. Uh, and, and, and then we, we may be able to get a little bit more sophisticated about personalization yeah. by, by using a, a given drug. That, that the FDA approves, which is going to be one composition. You're not going to have a thousand different company compositions sure. um, if it's a drug. And then combine it with uh, uh, either uh, food supplements or with diets that ensure that the bacteria that you're giving will have the food that they need to thrive in that environment. Right. Yep. 
Very cool. Um, on that note, you, you, you just mentioned uh, the, the FDA, and I'm curious about manufacturing and regulatory, uh, the manufacturing regulatory environment um, for um, bacterial therapeutics. Uh, how, how does the manufacturing uh, process look different than traditional biologics or the same? And then if you can kind of go from there to um, the, 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 uh, the, the, the regulatory waters that you've uh, had to navigate as, you, as you've moved forward. Um, <clears throat> is it uncharted? Is it entirely uncharted water that, uh, you know, the, the FDA seen for the first time or, or is there some precedent there as well? Um, so let, let me first make a, um, I'll focus my answer on the manufacturing of the type of drugs that we make, which are defined in nature, meaning that the drugs always are made of the same bacteria. And I'll make this differentiation because the manufacturing processes that you use for that are dramatically different from the manufacturing processes that you use if your drug is a fecal transplant. I mean, just to make a long story short, if your drug is a fecal transplant, there isn't really much of a sophisticated manufacturer. You, you basically take the feces from a donor. You have to extensively screen that donor to make sure that they don't carry pathogens like SARS-CoV-2 or, or certain bacteria. And then um, you will filter, process this tool, freeze it, and send it to the sites. That's, that's basically it. Yeah, for the uh, record, if, you, if, if, if I were on the receiving end of that therapy, I would, I would actually wish that the process was far more elaborate than that, but that's just me. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the fact that it's simple doesn't mean that, that, that um, it cannot pass FDA muster. Uh, it's just right. that the set of regulations are going to be more focused on the process mm -hmm. uh, than on the actual product composition, because the product composition is always going to change when you get a different donation. Think of it as an analogy as, as getting a, a blood transfusion. Right. Blood transfusion, every donation from a different donor is going to be essentially a different drug. You can standardize how you obtain the blood, how you test the donors, how you freeze it, how you ship it. And that may be sufficient to, to, be, to have the peace of mind that you need to treat a patient. Vis-a-vis um, -vis extracting an active ingredient from the blood, like a specific protein that you then want to make recombinantly and turn into a drug like EPO or, or clotting factor. That would be more akin to what we're trying to do. We're extracting active ingredients that we've selected rationally yeah. And then we're manufacturing each of those by fermentation. So that the main similarities with, back to your question, the main similarities with existing biologics is in what we call the upstream manufacturing, which is mm -hmm. how we create the cell banks and how we ferment the bacteria to make them multiply and get lots of them. Um, the downstream is, is, very, is, is, is fairly different. Um, another key difference from existing biologics is that our drugs are life. They can die. A protein, yeah. uh, a protein can get denatured, but, but it, it, it's not a, a, a living organism, right? So what does that mean? First of all, it means that because the bacteria that we use are, are anaerobic, which means that they don't like oxygen, the way we set the unit operations in our manufacturing train, we have to be very careful that we don't expose them to oxygen which is something that you usually don't have to worry about when you make biologics. Um, the second concern is that because they're life, you, you can kill them in other ways. For example, if you shear their mem membranes too strongly, mm -hmm. uh, for example, when you're trying to lyophilize the final product so that it can stay stable on the shelf, if you're too aggressive in how you do that, you can blow up, open the bacteria. Bacteria is dead, it's no useful anymore. 
right. so you have to find very very mild ways of doing doing that a, a third difference is that our products are multi-active ingredient in each product there may be 10 15 different species of bacteria each of which is a different active ingredient which means that we don't have one fermentation process and one lyophilization process we may have 10 of them uh, and so the complexity scales with uh, the number of uh, runs that you have to make the number of tests that you have to to do to to qualify the product and then maybe one last consideration is that some of these bacteria form spores some of them do not and you have to be very careful when some of the bacteria can form spores because you don't want them contaminating other products that you're making so right. when you put all these things together this is basically created an environment where to my knowledge there really isn't any contract manufacturer out there that really knows how to do all of the things that I've said. Mm -hmm. And as a result, we basically have to bite the bullet and build all the manufacturing in-house, which we've been doing for the last five years, yeah. to be able to do each of those steps so that we could um, we could get into the clinic. Yeah. That's uh that's a big undertaking. How's the uh how, how's that how's that particular undertaking going in terms of you know that capital investment and uh and the build out? So the cap the capital investment is sunk. It's behind us. It's in the past nice. now, uh, and it was it, it was significant. But now we get to we get to milk it because all the know how that we generated the first time that we did it, we can apply to the next program, right? So, what what the first time took us uh, uh, three to four years and a certain amount of money, now we can do with less than half of the time, and and a lot less expensively. Yeah. Um, and so what we what we've done is. To, to my knowledge, we were the first company to show the technical ability to take a defined consortium of bacteria, uh, manufacture it at GMP grade as a lyophilized powder drug, mm -hmm. uh, and put it in a clinical study. And since then, uh, our team has worked on four different programs that we have in the clinic uh, that, that we've done manufacturing in-house for. And, and now we've brought the modality to different stages depending on the disease. For example, we have a program in, in, in a phase two study for CD facility patients that had gone through a phase one before that. Uh, we have a product in IVD that just finished a couple of phase one studies that is going to go next into a studies in colitis patients. We have a, a third product in cancer that is in a phase one study in patients um, that have different types of cancers. And we have a fourth product that is also in patients in a, in a smaller uh, phase one, two uh, at AMGH uh, in adults and, and teenagers that have allergies to peanuts. Yeah. And all of, the, all of this has been enabled in, in large measure by being able to manufacture the compositions in-house. Um, because if we hadn't been able to do that, really we would not have had any control on our timelines. We wouldn't have known when we could reasonably start a study. Yeah, that's uh, it's good, good, good work and congratulations on the success to date. Um, we're running short on time here, Dr. Olier, but uh, I'll give you, give you a shot to tell me what's next. What's the next big step for Vedanta in terms of where you're at right now and where you want to be? So the next big step for us really is proving the modality to the outside world uh, mm -hmm. with patients, patient data in randomized, well-controlled, reasonable size studies. So we've, we've already shown that we can rationally select bacteria to create uh, drugs in the field, the fine drugs. We have shown that we can scale their manufacture 
and, and do it at GMP grade, uh, at, at least up to phase two scale for, for now. Uh, and we've also shown that if you give this, this type of drugs to healthy volunteers, uh, we've, we've dosed about 140 healthy volunteers, I think, across three studies, that we can do that very safely uh, and that we can find doses and those regimens that optimize the colonization. And, and all of those are risks that have been taken away. The risk that we couldn't rationally select the drug, the risk that we couldn't manufacture, the risk that we would pick the wrong dose and then fail in, in later stage studies because you, you dose the wrong dose. Mm -hmm. The next risk that we need to remove is that you give it to a patient population in a well-designed study and it works really well. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very optimistic about the prospect of being able to do that, but it, it'll be some time before we make um, results public that, that speak to that, um, to that question. Um, but certainly over the, the next uh, 12 months, starting uh, shortly, we have different results that keep coming from our studies in the four indications that I mentioned mm -hmm. that will help answer this question of, of how well the, the modality works. And once we've shown that, we'll have other challenges. We'll have the challenge of showing, okay, you've shown it can work for one thing, then how many things does it, can it work for and, and how important a medical problem are, are those things? Yeah. Well, good luck. Uh, good luck with that. We'll, we'll be keeping our eyes peeled, keeping an eye on you guys. And con as I said, congratulations on your success to date. It's a fascinating field. Uh, one that, uh, you know, I, I personally find uh, far more interesting than a lot of the stuff that we cover. So <laughs> I'll certainly be, uh, be keeping an eye on Vedanta. Um, Dr. Ullier, thank you for joining us today. I, I appreciate it. And thanks for sharing your story. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It was a lot of fun. My pleasure. So that's Dr. Bernat. Ouye, I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with Cytiva, which offers a host of wonderful resources for biopharma leaders at cytivalifesciences.com backslash emerging, uh, emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A lifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. Check that out. Please subscribe to our newsletter at bioprocessonline.com for lots, lots more content like this, and thank you for listening.